All right, Genesis 49. It's great to see everybody here this evening in our very festive sanctuary. I'm sure everybody's getting into the Christmas spirit one day at a time as we, we near closer and closer to the month of December. For those uh, purest of you out there, there's two groups, actually three groups, those who play Christmas music before Thanksgiving, those who only play, play Christmas music after Thanksgiving, and then there's the purists that don't start Christmas music until December 1st. I don't know where you fall in that. I see some heads nodding on the ladder, but Riley's been playing Christmas music since October, so he, he's that guy. We've got a couple other day men over there. But I uh, know this is beautiful. Look, we are definitely not meeting in our ideal time or day or even way, uh, but we are meeting. And we are gathering, and for that we can rejoice. Are you thankful for victory and their hospitality? What a, a beautiful um, just decoration that we can enjoy this evening as we look into the Word of God. Excited this evening to preach Genesis 49. We've got two more weeks of Genesis before we enter into um, our time of, of Christmas preaching and teaching, and we are, are just excited to bring Genesis uh, to a close. And this evening in Genesis 49, we're going to see uh, a couple of nods forward, messianic uh, touches back to or looking forward to Christ. And so we even get to see a little bit of Christmas here in, in Genesis 49 as we consider the tribe of Judah. So looking forward to making some of those connections. But here we are in Genesis 49. I know that uh, as, as you look at this passage, maybe you've been reading ahead. As you think back in previous chapters, this might read somewhat like one of those genealogy passages, right? Where you're kind of like, oh, you know, just kind of laboring through some sections of this, maybe some of the analogies and um, aphorisms that are, that are taught here in Genesis 49. Maybe you're like, what's going on here? So I'm going to do my best by God's grace uh, to not only faithfully preach and teach the Word of God, but hopefully to make some applicable connections to our day and our time. It's going to be difficult for this not to turn into a history and geography lesson here in, in Genesis 49. So what I'm going to attempt to do is make some principles that we can draw out of an individual's life that's, that's mentioned here, one of the sons or a group of sons, and, and seek to draw out this, this timeless principle that we can, we can draw our Attention to, but what we see here in Genesis 49 are some of the last words of, of Jacob, right? He's on his deathbed. And Jacob's life, his living, his interactions, his influence among his sons and others, it's drawing to a quick end, right? And so we have here Jacob's final words of blessings. That's a very original title, I know. Uh, Jacob's final words of blessings, but it's exactly what it is. And I think anytime you have somebody's final words recorded in Scripture, they typically carry with it an extra measure of significance, right? We can think back of different times where uh, we, can, we can call that true, a true statement, right? And that's what we have here. Jacob on his, his deathbed, calling all of his sons together, and he is now going to impart in a, a prophetic way by inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, these blessings uh, onto his sons, a passing of these covenant blessings in different ways, shapes, and forms uh, to his, his sons. But one of the things that we, we certainly draw out and that we see here is we see legacy. 
we see that above all, the actions throughout the life of these sons have real consequences. Is that true in our day as well? Actions have consequences, right? That's a timeless universal truth, right? When I'm teaching my kids the difference between right and wrong and obedience and disobedience, this is a very simple and elementary way that I communicate this, that your actions and your consequences, your actions and your decisions have consequences. And that, that will be true for the rest of their life. It's true for my life and and until the Lord calls us home, our actions will always have consequences. Sometimes those consequences will be positive. There will be a positive consequence. Uh, there'll be a blessing associated with obedience and, and doing right uh, and standing for right. And in some cases when we choose to not do what is right and to disobey and to not follow God's clear commands and ways, there will be negative consequences. And as we work our way through this list of sons, as Jacob is imparting their portion of the blessing down to these sons, we're going to reflect back in some ways to our time and our journey through the book of Genesis, and we're going to remember these individual sons. We're going to remember the choices that they made, and as a result, the blessing that they are going to receive. This is a sobering passage. As we reflect on that reality, again, that actions have consequences, those actions develop into sometimes habits. And those habits develop into a lifestyle, and that lifestyle will absolutely become one's legacy. And that can have a positive or a negative tone to it, depending on one's choices. So this pattern of, of actions and habits and lifestyle and legacy, this, this pattern that I just described, it's a universal reality for every human being. Every single one of us here are creating a legacy that will be remembered and then in some ways will be passed on to the next generation. We're creating a living and lasting legacy that will, it will impact future Generations, And if there's not a more sobering thought than that, I don't know what there is, right? The fact that my actions, my decisions, my habits, my lifestyle determines my legacy and that legacy will impact future generations. That's a big deal. And so this is one of the truths that we need to sit up and our ears need to be attentive because that's all of us. We all are creating a legacy. Legacies aren't just for Moses and Noah and the Apostle Pauls of the Bible. For our day, legacies aren't just for the George Washingtons and Abraham Lincolns of history. Legacies are for each and every person, us normal minions of life, right? We are all creating a legacy. Whether you deem yourself important or not important, you're creating a legacy. And the reality of it is, is that the practical and tangible legacies of life typically aren't really felt from generation to generation from the big people. They are, don't get me wrong. But from a family legacy perspective, who passes and who creates those legacies? Is it not moms and dads? Is it not 
husbands and, and wives, is it not grandmas and grandpas that are living and acting and choosing in a certain way that are impacting real lines of human beings for generations to come? And so, friends, your legacy matters. Right? Again, whether you've accomplished something great or not, or in your perspective, you're, you're big or small, your legacy is going to have a lasting impact in future generations. And this is the universal truth that we see jumping off the pages of Genesis 49. Some are living in that reality and making good choices, and some are not living that reality and have made horrible decisions. And those legacies will have an impact for future generations. But friends, let's not just look at this from a history perspective and say, man, that guy, this guy, man, they made some really bonehead moves and their legacy is horrible. But what about us, right? I want to bring it home. What about me and, and you? What about your families? What is your legacy going to be in your home, in your church, in your neighborhood, in community? Where are people seeing from you? Are they seeing Jesus Christ? Are they seeing the gospel? Are they seeing the good news? Are they seeing distractions? Wasted time? Careless stewardship of our time? Neglect of our important and most basic roles as husbands and fathers? Friends, your legacy matters. And in some ways, Jacob here in his final words to his sons is attempting to raise their sense of urgency to wake them up into this reality that they have a legacy and they're going to live it. So it's a sobering reality check for us all. Your legacy, my legacy will have a ripple effect to future generations. Just let that sink in for a moment. Whether you have kids or you don't have kids, we're touching each other's lives every single day and week and year. How am I stewarding that today? Actions made, habits developed, lifestyles established, legacies unfold, which will all culminate into this tribal and generational consequences. Jacob's now going to prophetically deliver this to each son right here in our text. So that being said, I believe there are some great applications that we can glean, and these applications hopefully will be impactful as we take them to heart. So here's a big idea of our text, Genesis 49, big idea. God uses the actions of his people to bring about his perfect and sovereign plan in a way that maximizes his glory among the nations. Say that one more time. Our big idea of Genesis 49. God uses the actions of his people to bring about his perfect and sovereign plan in a way that maximizes his glory among the nations. What do we mean in that big idea? Let me break it down just for a moment, and then we're going to jump right into it. Have you heard us talk a little bit about the sovereignty of God through the series of Genesis a couple times we've mentioned it. What about you? But if we're not careful, can you not see yourself slipping into this improper view of the sovereignty of God that leads us down a path that could cause us to think that our actions don't matter? Why? Because God is the supreme authority and power over all things at all times? 
and his will, his plan is going to be accomplished and his providence, it's going to come about because have we not said nothing can thwart the providential and sovereign plan of the Lord. And so what do my actions really matter, right? I want to be clear. Your actions do matter. Why? Because God uses your actions. God uses the choices that you make to bring about his sovereign plan and to maximize his glory in this world. So my choices, my decisions, my thoughts, my reactions, my habits, my lifestyle, my choices establish a legacy that matters because it all connects to God's sovereign plan that he is bringing about in this world to point all nations to himself that at Philippians uh, chapter number two, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So my choices, my decisions, they matter because God is using them as a part of his sovereign plan. So don't check out. Remember just a few chapters ago, the brothers were doing what? Just staring at each other, sitting around doing nothing while this famine is wreaking havoc on their families. They're running out of food. And Jacob says, why are you standing around staring at each other? Get off the bench. Don't just have a woe is me moment. Your life matters. Because it's creating a legacy that God desires to use for his glory. And so there's an element of intentionality and urgency that comes to everyday mundane living for you and me today. These are some of the applications that we can draw out right here in Genesis 49. Because friends, if there's one thing I want us to come away with this evening, it's this, our actions matter, our choices matter, our habits matter because they're creating a legacy. So this evening we're going to examine the compatibility of the sovereignty of God and the actions of mankind as we consider how God through Jacob will proportionally divide the promised land among his sons, which we know will ultimately become the tribes of the nation of Israel. So let's jump into it. Let's look at our first principle from the first son that is mentioned right here in Genesis 49. First son is Reuben. And the principle is this, leadership can and will be limited as a result of committing a moral failure. Leadership can and will be limited as a result of committing a moral failure. Do you remember the life of Reuben? We've covered this in great detail in the past, so I'm not gonna unpack every single one of these sons and the choices that they've made, so I'm trusting that your memory serves you well this evening. But we see potential that was lost in the life of Reuben. As Jacob calls and assembles these sons together in verse number three, he says, Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. We stop right there. We think Reuben is the true heir of Jacob. He's going to receive the birthright. He's going to rule and reign as he was designed to be as the firstborn, but yet his legacy, his choices, his habits, his lifestyle, 
culminated in a legacy. It didn't stop there. Verse number four, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Potential that was lost due to these sins against his father. This moral failure will follow Reuben for all the days of his life and now hundreds and thousands of years later this legacy follows Reuben along. It's chronicled in the book of Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and the chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. Reuben, the firstborn, he defiled, sinned against his father, and as a result, his leadership and his influence was what? It was limited. Actions and choices have what? Consequences. We see this in the life of Reuben. This is a, a timeless and universal principle that we need to live in reality of yet today. Men, young men, moral failures in your personal life and your family, they are going to limit your leadership and influence. They're going to wreak havoc. They're going to hinder God's blessing on your life as a result of your sin, of this capacity, this egregious sin of a moral failure. It's, it's a big deal. It changes the family tree. It has impact beyond yourself into future generations. This is nothing to play with, friends, when we consider moral failures. Leadership can and will be limited as a result of committing a moral failure. We see most clearly in Reuben's blessing from Jacob that actions again have consequences. Reuben lost his birthright. His rightful place as future leader among the tribes of Israel was, was taken away. Why? Because he chose to willingly get this act in a way that was contrary to God's ways. Reuben willingly acted in a way that was contrary to God's ways. So friends, maybe it's not a, a big moral failure, but are you planting the seeds in your life, maybe in the secret of your heart or in your own time, in your own way? Are you willingly acting in a way that is contrary to God's way? This is the pattern that Reuben walked, and as a result, it drastically impacted his life, and guess what? The tribe, his household, would not be in this birthright type of standing as a son of Jacob, as part of the, the nation of Israel. Reuben's choices impacted future generations. He's described in verse number four as unstable as water. Reuben had all the tangibles to be 
the recipient of the birthright. Right? He had what we would call the hard skills of life. He he, he, he knew the part, he, he acted the part, he had the disposition, the demeanor. Jacob describes it, but yet he is unstable as, as water. As I looked into this phrase, obviously it's, it's a unique phrase. It, it jumped out to me as a unique description of Reuben. As we look at this, most commentators agree that this speaks to the failure in Reuben's character that ultimately led to his immoral act and subsequent disqualification as a leader among his brothers. He was unstable as water. He was impulsive. He was destructive as water. Some translations even say this is the way that Reuben interacted in life. In some way, Jacob described Reuben as unstable as water. Water can be destructive. It can destroy. And as such, Reuben destroyed his right to inherit and to lead family. Principle number two, this describes Simeon and Levi. Not only can leadership can and will be limited as a result of committing a moral failure, but the second principle is this, anger and violence are a reproach and incompatible with the blessing of God. Anger and violence are a reproach and incompatible with the blessing of God. Again, we have our first grouping, right? Simon, or excuse me, Simeon and Levi are connected together in this description here in this blessing given down from Jacob. Let's read verse number five. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Now, this is a, um, this is an obvious statement. We know they're brothers, but the way that this is connected in, in this description of brothers, it gives us an indication that, um, that they're trying to draw our attention that they are like-minded in their disposition, Right? So Simeon and Levi, they were kind of cut from the same cloth, so to speak, right? They had the same tendencies, the same attitude, the same disposition. They responded in like ways as brothers. And so they're all brothers, but specifically Simeon and Levi are connected in this particular um, blessing because of their like-mindedness in it. Anger and violence are reproach and incompatible with the blessing of God. We see this uh, in verse number five, weapons of violence are their swords. Verse six, let my soul come not into their counsel. O oh, my glory, be not joined to their company. From their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce. In their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Again, we won't recount the, def the, uh, the detail of uh, Hamor's son, Shechem, and the wrong that had been done to uh, their sister, Dinah, but we can learn how God responds and ultimately how Jacob responds to this incredible wrong that, that was done to Dinah, that God does distinguish between uh, holy and just war and just simple and vain, ruthless anger and vengeance, right? There, there are moral and ethical lines 
that, that seem to be drawn in some way, shape, or form here that Simeon and Levi crossed in how they responded to um, this sin of Shechem against their sister Dinah. We saw this in, in, in chapter 34 of Genesis. And as a result of them acting out in just raw anger and vengeance and hatred and just a pure murderous heart, this reality would be their legacy and ultimately would limit their role in the blessing of God. So in this description of Simeon and Levi, we see both the justice and the grace of God in these two men. What do I mean by that? Although these men seem to be gripped by vengeance and anger, which they were, God still chose to do what? To use them. In, in some way, shape, or form, they, they still have a role, they still have a place as sons of Jacob to, uh, in, in some limited capacity, to inherit the blessing of God through uh, the, being his, his covenant, uh, part of his covenant blessings, covenant promises. So Simeon would have the greatest negative impact as we look forward. His tribe would ultimately be graciously absorbed into the tribe of, of Judah. Um, Simeon doesn't have, as a standalone tribe, a lasting legacy as, as his tribe, again, would be absorbed there with the tribe of, of Judah. And we know that, that Levi and, and his line would be somewhat vindicated from his past deeds as they would serve as this priestly line of, of, of Israel, which is, again, we see the grace of God and still using and still um, allowing Simeon and Levi to be a part of this blessing. So regardless, Jacob speaks very harshly here, does he not? Uh, to Simeon and Levi. He communicates the extent of this fallout. In verse number six in particular, it jumps out to me as I read it. Verse number six, the beginning says, let, my, let not, or excuse me, let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh my glory, be not joined to their company. So again, there's some universal principles that we're drawing out from the life of these sons as they have established legacy that Jacob is prophetically proclaiming that we need to sit up and listen to, right? So we see in two primary ways that the spirit of anger and vengeance negatively impacts the legacy of, of Simeon and Levi. First is this, those that consistently operate in a spirit of anger cannot offer wisdom to others. Right, do you see that here in, in this description of Jacob to Simeon and Levi? He says what? Uh, in, in verse number six, let not my soul come into their counsel. When you think of trying and hard times in your life, when you think of you coming up against difficult times, you don't, the names that pop in your head, that, hey, a multitude of counsel, I need to go seek them out and allow them to speak into my life in this situation. You don't think of the most angry you know, person that's filled with hatred, that just constantly is slandering and putting others down. You're not seeking them out for counsel to speak into your life, right? Hatred and anger and a murderous heart is going to cause our counsel, our impact, our wisdom to be substantially limited. We see this continually through the book of Proverbs. Speaks to 
the danger and the impact of anger and hatred. Proverbs 18, verse 6 says, A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's lips walks into a fight, right? Don't you kind of see the connection between Simeon and their legacy here? That they're just looking for opportunity to act out in hatred and anger towards others. Proverbs 14, verse 17, a man of quick temper acts foolishly, and a man of evil deceives, or excuse me, devises, devices is hatred. A man of quick temper acts foolishly. So that's the, the first negative impact of the spirit of anger. Those that consistently operate in the spirit of anger cannot offer wisdom. The second way is this. Those that constantly and consistently operate in the spirit of anger cannot maintain meaningful relationships with others. So my, my ability to speak into and, and counsel and to offer wisdom, it's all but taken away, if not drastically limited. If, if I'm operating in a spirit of hatred and anger and vengeance, but it's also near impossible for me to maintain meaningful relationships with others. You see there in verse number six, oh my glory, Jacob says, be not joined to their company. Jacob wants nothing to do with these sons when it comes to their counsel and their company. He's, he's essentially giving them the proverbial Heisman, right? He's keeping them at arm's length. You guys stay over there. I don't want anything to do with your words or your deeds. And as a result, is that going to limit Jacob's relationships with these two sons? Absolutely. So friends, when we look into our hearts and we consider how we're relating to other people when anger, when we're consistently acting out and responding and reacting in a spirit and a disposition and a demeanor of anger, it's going to negatively impact relationships. It's not going to allow us to relate to others in the way that we're called to. And that we need to for the glory of God. Proverbs 16, 32, whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. But he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty. And he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 10, verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all Offenses. Hatred stirs up strife, causes dissension, isolates us from each other. But what does love do? On the contrary, it covers all offenses. It, it draws us together in a spirit of unity. So we look beyond offenses. We're able to relate to each other in a biblical way that God calls us to. Principle number three, we're gonna look at Judah. God entrusts the leadership of his people to those who are concerned with the welfare of others. God entrusts the leadership of his people to those that are concerned with the welfare of others. As we look through verses 8 through 12, we probably have one of the most prominent descriptions here of one of the sons. 
one of the prominent blessings that is elaborated on a bit more than others and, and, and for uh, a rightful place and a rightful way, Judah, in good times and bad, and most recently in chapter 43, Judah is the one who is exercising sound leadership. Right? If you remember when Reuben tries to come back from Egypt and to get Jacob to, to uh, send Benjamin down and, and to get more food and to get uh, Simeon back, who Joseph is holding captive at the time. Reuben wasn't able to do it, but, but Jacob, over a period of time, the food is running out. He's looking out and he's determining it's life or death. We can't sit here and do nothing. Jacob, we've got to act. We've got to move. We've got to take Jacob, or we've got to take Benjamin, excuse me, and we've got to go back down to Egypt. Uh, Judah's the one who stands in the gap. Judah's the one that rallies the troops, who enlists fellowship and is able to get Jacob out of his slumber, out of his woe is me attitude, his victim mentality, and, and to take good sound action and decision. It's, it's Judah who does this. It's Judah at that time who serves himself up as a what? Uh, as, as a certain guarantee of Benjamin's safety, if you'll remember. Judah personally does that. What did Reuben do? He put forward what? Remember that? He put forward his sons. Right? If I fail, you can, you can have my sons. Judah says, hey, if I fail to bring Benjamin back safely, it's me. It's on me. It's on my shoulders. Relinquishing Jacob from any really responsibility of, of sending Benjamin down. And it's in Egypt, if you remember, when Joseph kind of starts to stir the pot and, and test the sons. It's Judah that goes to the ear of Joseph and communicates with, with passion and conviction that, look, if I don't return with Benjamin, my son his gray hair will go down to Sheol. Do you remember this? It's Judah that rises to the occasion. It's Judah that exercises leadership. And it's him that says, hey, you know what? Take, take me in exchange. But if Benjamin doesn't go back, my father, Jacob, is, can, can bear no additional harm, turmoil, distress. You have to wonder at, at what point would have Jacob ever taken action if not for Judah's leadership? What would have happened to this covenant people if Judah would not have been used by God to be this catalyst for action and movement and change? So we see Judah standing in the gap. This birthright passes over Reuben, passes over Simeon and Levi, and technically continues on to Joseph. However, God providentially gives Judah the blessing of kingship and leadership among the other tribes, right? We see uh, Judah described here in verse number eight, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than Milk. What an incredible description of this son Judah and his future tribe's legacy among the nation of Israel. So it's interesting to note that Judah's name proclaims this particular role as Judah means, literally means he will be praised or let him be praised. It is Judah then that will bring victory in battle and as such he will be praised for it. Not just among his tribe, but his brothers will acknowledge Judah's role and leadership in this this way. So he will be recognized widely as, as a mighty warrior. Do honor and certainly praiseworthy in this role as leader in in kingship that's established here through the tribe of Judah. So we see that in verse number nine with this analogy of the lion, right? But our most significant observation concerning Judah comes from verse number nine as we see this messianic nod forward, as we, we look to the future kingship of the one that will be to come. As we think back of Genesis, remember the first proto-evangelion, right? Genesis 3.15, the first instance of the gospel as seen in scriptures. This is the seed of the woman that will do what? Crush the head of the serpent. We're looking forward to making it. Sorry, I'm not trying to steal your thunder, Dave. We're looking forward to it as we go through our Advent series in just a couple weeks. But we're going to make these connections. We see it once again right here in Genesis 49. Do we see Christ? Do we see the gospel? Do we see the hope of a true and better Judah who will rule and reign for all eternity? This is the tribe of Judah. We know that Christ will come from this tribe of Judah. We see that in in Hebrews chapter 7, Deuteronomy as well. So the scepter, the scepter would remain in the tribe of Judah until the one comes to whom it belongs. This is all looking forward to again, hoping for the long awaited for Messiah, Jesus Christ, of which we can celebrate even tonight in a few moments as we remember him and celebrate his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection as we observe ordinance of the Lord's Supper. These final two verses speak to this period of blessing that would that would come in through the line of, of Judah. So we see in verses 11 and 12, we see this, um, this praiseworthy character that's coming out again through Judah. So what, what can we learn? What are we to pull from as far as principles of application from the example of Judah and the blessing that was given by the Lord through Jacob? Consider this. Can we not clearly see that the blessing passed over his older brothers primarily due to what? Egregious sins. Right? I mean, we, we considered that. We saw Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and now we get to Judah. The, the birthright, the, the true blessing of, 
of Jacob, passed on from Abraham, Isaac. It's looked over of all these sons. Why? Because of egregious sin. And then we come to, we come to Judah. And the Lord sees fit to both honor and use the leadership of Judah to protect and lead the nation of Israel for generations to come. So he's not the recipient of the true birthright, but yet Judah and his character and his integrity and his leadership stands tall in this series of blessings, does he not? Principle number four, we're going to group now a number of these sons together uh, as we see uh, more short uh, statements, um, aphorisms, these statements um, that are going to make a general truth about this particular individual and their future tribe. We're going to group Zebulun, Issachar, Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, and Benjamin all together in these shorter, more concise statements that are represented here in Genesis 49. And this is the principle that we generally can pull from, from these men. God uses the mundane and ordinary to steward the people of God. You look at these legacies that are established, these blessings that are given by Jacob to these sons, and they're a little underwhelming when you look at some of them, right? It's not a Joseph, it's not a Judah, Not necessarily negative connotations. Some do have uh, some slight negative connotations, but primarily it's just a simple statement of just a normal role uh, within the blessing of God. They're not necessarily going to accomplish anything great and mighty. They're not going to go down in the pages of history as being some super ruler or leader, but yet here they are. Within the covenant promises of God. And it matters. You think of the hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of lives that are going to be touched as a result of these individual men and the legacies and the tribes that they will establish. It's a big deal. So God uses the mundane and ordinary to steward the people of God. So we're going to spend, we're not going to spend a ton of time going through all the nuances of these these six sons, but we're going to go ahead and include again Benjamin into this. So we're going to cover verses 13 through 21. We're going to skip down to verse number 27 where Benjamin is is mentioned. And I'm just going to give some just quick statements on on each one of these these sons and their particular blessing. So Zebulun is described in verse number 13. Again, a simple statement here that He's essentially going to be enriched and he's going to be blessed and his livelihood and and the future of his tribe is going to grow in ways by way of their position, specifically on the Mediterranean Sea, right? They're going to be people of the sea. There's going to be trade and, and, uh, you know, different things that are going to happen specifically through the line of Zebulun as a result of their position right there on the sea. We have Issachar in verses 14 through 15. This one is a little bit more challenging and interesting as Issachar seems to have been 
enamored by the beauty of this particular location and its abundant bounty. And instead of really exercising leadership and instead of claiming a true position and, and right to the land, Issachar seems to just fade into the background and becomes essentially an indentured servant to the land of Canaan. And this is interesting because, I mean, Issachar is described as what? Uh, essentially a donkey, right? He's able to, uh, many people think that it's just he has a strong back. He was skilled with working the land and uh, he enjoyed eating and resting, uh, many commentators describe. And as such, he was simply content to work for somebody else in exchange for food and, and bounty. And so we have Issachar here that's, um, again, described as this indentured servant, consuming the blessings of the land, um, but yet not necessarily taking active hold of the land. We see Dan in verses 16 through 18, uh, a little bit broader description here for Dan. We know that um, Dan was born of, of a concubine, was certainly not as prominent uh, as others uh, within the, the, uh, the sons of Jacob, but they would be used of God to gain victory in, in battle over more powerful enemy, enemies. They were small in might, but like a serpent, as he's described here in his particular blessing, he would, he would bite at the heels of the horse. It would call, cause the, the horseman to do what? To fall off and to fail in battle. So although Dan would be, be small in size, they would be skilled and victorious in battle. Dan would take down many, many a foe with the stature and the prominence of, of a horse. But yet, God would use Dan despite their, their lack of prominence, despite his, his lack of role of greatness within uh, the sons of Jacob. He certainly had a specific purpose. We see Gad in verse number 19. We simply know that Gad uh, would be visited by many raiders or uh, marauders, uh, those that would come and seek to loot and to pillage. And they, they would come after, uh, and specifically Gad, but what would Gad do? They would overcome. And it says that they would, they would raid others, and, and they would be victorious, despite the challenges that they would encounter along the way. We have Asher in verse number 20, describes his land in terms of plenty, both by way of quantity and quality. So we have the tribe of Asher here who apparently were skilled in, in uh, agrarian uh, workmanship, right? They understood how to produce the best of the best, the, the delicacies uh, that would be used by leaders and rulers, consumed by rulers and leaders of the day. And that as such, would enrich and bless the tribe of Asher. We have Naphtali here would be a free mountain people. They're described as inhabiting the highlands. Not much is said about them, but we know that they would win a name for themselves under Barak by leading Israel to break loose from bondage, and that's recorded in Judges 4 and 5. You can research that a bit more on your own time, but again, uh, a less prominent role, but yet used by God uh, to do a work and to accomplish his perfect and sovereign plan. And then in verse number seven, 27, excuse me, we have Benjamin. 
Benjamin gets a specific and special analogy ascribed to him, similar to that of Judah. Right? We have a, an animal that's brought in to describe the impact and the legacy of Benjamin. In verse number 27, we see what? Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning, devouring the prey, and at evening, dividing the spoil. What are we to, what are we to make of, of verse number 27 and, and the legacy of, of Benjamin? Similar to that of a lion, a wolf often kills more than it, it can eat. This allows for others to, to feed off of this kill and providing sustenance, provision for, for others. So in a sense, Benjamin's prosperity would grow to the point of having an excess that would be given to aid other tribes at different times. This is important to note as Benjamin was, again, a somewhat favored son of Jacob as well. And Jacob offers this prominent and somewhat specific and special blessing. This is a positive for the tribe of Benjamin. This brings us to our final son. Of course, we, we know that that is Joseph. Our fifth and final principle of these blessings is this, that God honors and blesses those who patiently and faithfully endure persecution and hardship. God honors and blesses those who patiently and faithfully endure persecution and hardship. We see verses 22 through 26, and finally down to verse 28, we see Joseph described in really glowing terms, do we not? We know that throughout Joseph's life, many have sought to rob Joseph of his particular blessing um, and special relationship that he had with Jacob started at the beginning of, of, his, of his time with his brothers, right? They were constantly attempting to put him down to, uh, to uh, relinquish this particular and special role that, that Joseph held within their home. Potiphar's wife, again, attempted to slander. Uh, we know all the trials and tribulations that were brought on as a result of his brothers selling him into slavery and, and everything that went on in that, being jailed. Uh, but yet, God was there. In his sovereign plan, God was using Joseph in a special and unique way. And I love the recent verses that we looked at uh, where he proclaims what you meant for evil, God meant for good. Joseph had an eternal perspective to his trials and tribulations. He knew that God was there. He knew that he was working. He knew that he was exactly where he needed to be. What a mature and above-minded type of mindset that Joseph had in the midst of incredible tribulation. So we see Joseph is foreshadowing the specific and special blessing that Joseph is given now as the true birthright is passed on from Jacob to Joseph. And specifically, he, he uses this, this picture of a vine with, with bows or branches that are leaning over a well. And this is foreshadowing what the uh, Jacob's ability to absorb these attacks and tribulations and troubles 
He's able to maintain a continual state of, of health and prosperity. Why? Because there is there's a branch that is tapped into the well, which is what? God's specific sovereign plan. God has chosen Joseph and he will protect and maintain Joseph. So I love this analogy of this well and this branch that, that bends over. Although there may be difficulty with other areas of the vine, they cannot snuff this vine out. Why? Because it's tapped into a continual source of sustenance and growth and stability and strength. So we see in verse number 24, in the beginning of, of 25, we see this description, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by whom? The hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there, there is a shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings from heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings from the breast and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. It is God who has done this work. It is God who is choosing to use Joseph in this way. It is God who will bring about the victory in these attacks and these difficulties that are foreshadowed to continue to come. But I'm thankful that Joseph has the testimony of recognizing and realizing this really throughout his life. Has not Joseph been quick to acknowledge that his success, his wisdom, his ability came only from God? It is God who interpreted the dreams. It is God that allowed him to be in Egypt. It is God that paved the way for his success in Egypt and to establish his position to be the, the manager over this incredible distribution of food and managing a worldwide famine. It is God who has done this. And it is God only that could do this thing. He's described in very specific and unique ways. These descriptions of God are important to know. We see that God is the mighty one of Jacob with great power and might. He's described as the shepherd. This is the one who leads and defends Joseph all his days. He is the stone of Israel who is stable and unchanging. It is the Almighty who created all things. It is He and only He that could both promise and deliver these eternal blessings from heaven above and also from the deep. It is Yahweh, El Elam, El Shaddai, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that we've seen all through the pages of Genesis. It is He that continues to be faithful to His covenant promises as this is passed now directly to Joseph and his line. So friends, these are the final words of Jacob on his deathbed. And then as you come and prepare ourselves for the time of communion. The good news for us today as we transition to the Lord's Supper is that God has continued to be faithful to his covenant promises. 
God has continued to be faithful through the tribe of Judah. Will come the long-awaited for Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, who would come to fulfill the law and save his people from their sins. So, friends, what's our takeaway from this text this evening? What should we go away from as we consider the Lord's suppers, as we continue to work through this time of communion? We should be sitting on the edges of our seat with full excitement and expectant spirits because we remember this evening, because we have the benefit of the full pages of Scripture, the full counsel of God, that there was a true and better Adam. There was a true and better Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and even Joseph. For there was only one that was able to do what man had failed to do over and over again. It was God himself taking on flesh, giving his life a ransom for many, thus making a new covenant. Not through the law, but this new covenant, friends, involved the giving of his life and the shedding of his blood. And it is that that we remember and celebrate together tonight. Would you look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And you can have a seat if you would mind. It might just be a couple more minutes. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. We're reminded of the words that were recorded all the way back in Luke chapter number 22. Paul supports this observance of this final supper, this Lord's Supper with his disciples before he is about to go to the cross and to shed his blood. And Paul understands the weight, the importance, the responsibility of remembering the Lord in this way. Paul says in verse number 27 of 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on Himself. That's a sobering reality as we certainly celebrate the Lord's life, but yet it draws us into a time of introspection as we consider our actions have consequences this evening. Our actions establish habits. Our habits establish a lifestyle, and our lifestyle establishes a legacy. I wonder, what is our legacy, our life, what our actions look like among the body this evening. How are we relating to each other as the Bible says we should? We know here at Liberty Hills, uh, part of our culture, something that we hold dear is our, our church covenant, right? And uh, as we go to the Lord's table, it's always a great opportunity for us to examine ourselves and to consider how we're relating to each other. We do that through the context of a church covenant, right? And so uh, we're going to put the covenant up there on the screen, if you wouldn't mind doing that for us, Ethan. And let's go ahead and stand together, stretch our legs just for a moment as we consider uh, this particular covenant that we have established here at River Hills. Again, this isn't anything inspired. This is simply us looking at Scripture and drawing out 
Uh, I forgot I'm not supposed to be on the side there. Uh, and drawing out uh, interpretation and the application of Scripture in the form of a covenant. So if you wouldn't mind, let's read this covenant together with me. In recognition of Christ's purpose for the church and having been saved by God's grace and baptized in obedience to Christ Jesus' command, we, the members of Liberty Hills Bible Church, you will ardently and joyfully enter into the following covenant. To gather faithfully with one another for the teaching of biblical doctrine, for fellowship, for the observance of the Lord's Supper, and for faithful prayer. To love one another continually, to encourage and build up one another, to discern, develop, and deploy our spiritual gifts, to honor and respect those in spiritual leadership, to sustain ministry through financial support, to recognize Christian liberty, to reconcile differences, and to attempt to restore singing brother. Furthermore, we will strive for personal growth in our relationship with Christ, to pursue obedience regarding biblical family roles, as parents bringing our children into discipline and instruction of the Lord, as husbands loving our wives as Christ loved the church, as wives submitting willingly and lovingly to the headship of our husbands, and as children both obeying and honoring our parents. We will strive to live Christ-like lives as we carry out the Lord's great commission by evangelizing and discipling within our spheres of influence. We covenant to do these things with the help of our Lord and for His glory. Amen. And this draws our attention as we consider why we exist as a church. We know that the Lord covers that for us in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, but we've, again, packaged that in a particular purpose statement that we can easily and concisely remember. Go ahead and turn over to that, Ethan. This is our purpose statement. Would you read it with me? Liberty Hills Bible Church exists to make mature followers of Christ to the glory of God. And then you may be seated. I wonder as you read that church covenant, as you considered our purpose statement, I think the question that Paul would have for us is how we how are we doing? In the time of a global pandemic, fellowship and relationships and physical interactions certainly look very different uh, than maybe they had in the past. But I wonder, are we making an effort? Are we honoring the spirit of our covenant, even in challenging and and difficult times? Let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer as we prepare our hearts this evening. Father God, I pray as we partake of the Lord's Supper, I pray that you would just simply be glorified, that you would be magnified, that you would be celebrated, that your role in the gospel's work in our lives would be uh, what our heart is anchored on because it is, as we have sung over the last few weeks, a sure and steady anchor, unmovable, unchanging, lasting, eternal. Father, I thank you that we can anchor our souls in the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, although the storms rage, although the, the waves of life crash over the vessel of our life, we are anchored sure because of Christ. I thank you that we can have hope in the midst of a hopeless time, that we can have confidence in the midst of an anxious world, we can have peace 
in the midst of a troubled society. Father God, I pray that you do a work this evening as we partake of this incredible blessing of simply remembering the work of the Lord. How we need to recalibrate our hearts back to this reality so often. The cares of this world, the troubles of life, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it all wages battle against our soul. But Father, I pray that as we come to the table, that we would be revived. He would breathe fresh breath and life into our soul through the word of God and the Holy Spirit, that that counselor, that paraclete, would do a work in changing us to be more like our son, Jesus Christ. Father God, I pray that you would do a work in our body and our church this evening as we obey and honor you through observing the Lord's Supper. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.